0: that's not my fault. (laughs) Too many mashed potatoes, I guess. It's good to be with you today. Good to see you again. Uh, Merry Christmas to all of you. We left Madison Hat this morning with fog. I wasn't sure whether we'd be on time or not. Followed that all the way to Bow Island pretty well. So if the old wives tale is right, middle of February, expect a big snowfall. We'll see. Anyway, Bill, Bill Butterworth served as a director for counseling ministries for uh, Chuck Swindoll's church for a number of years. And uh, a few years ago, when his children were small, uh, the late Joe Bailey, who was an excellent speaker and author, was going to have a, a series of, of meetings at their church Uh, Bill Butterworth and his wife had four children, uh, five, four, two, and one month, and they realized they couldn't both go to these meetings, so Bill, in a moment of bravery or maybe stupidity, said to his wife, you go to the meetings and I'll take care of the kids. It was an interesting week. He kept a record of his thoughts And these are some of the things he wrote. My four year old wants to know why it is when mommy goes out, the kids have to go to bed while it's still light outside. (laughs) I tried to feed them dinner, it was a disaster. Tomorrow night, I'll feed them in the backyard. They'll eat off paper plates, they'll be dressed in underwear and shower caps. The kids always want me to read the alphabet book because they know I can't skip pages. I like this one. Never close your eyes when you pray with your kids. I always wanted to ask my four-year-old what it was like to sleep on the top bunk with his big wheel. (laughs) Sixty minutes won't even do a story on our house. Safer in the Middle East. The kids are all mad at me because cupcakes won't float in the bathtub. My two-year-old has special powers. He can look at a juice glass and it will spill. I just made a big mistake. I lifted the lid off the diaper pail. That one act will clear the sinuses, kill roaches, fleas, and ticks, and effectively discourage all would-be burglars. I got angry. I said some things I shouldn't have said. Now my five-year-old wants to know, who's Joe Bailey and why do I hate him so much? (laughs) You know, life is full of surprises, full of trials. Listening this morning, uh, I gather that you're not unfamiliar with trials here either. At least many of you aren't. Now James, who authored the New Testament book that bears his name, was a practical theologian. And in the first 18 verses of James chapter 1, he talks about two issues that we all face. Trials and temptations. I get to be with you next week as well, so this week we're going to talk about what James says about handling trials. And next week, what James says about handling temptations. I think all of them should be understood really in the context of the verse that, Comes right after this section, verse one to eighteen, James one nineteen, which might be the key verse to the whole to the whole book. It, it surely contains some of the best advice you'll find anywhere. Maybe not advice, maybe a command. Where James says, "There, be quick to listen, be slow to speak, be slow to anger." And the reason that might come right after what he says about trials and temptations is because when we face trials or when we face temptations, sometimes we don't listen. And it's easy to say too much, and it's easy to be angry, even, even angry at God. Some time ago, I read a piece by Chris Tigran. Chris Tigran writes devotionals for Walk Through the Bible and he, he had a book titled Walk with God. And in one of his entries, he says this, Paul struggled with his thorn in the flesh. Three times he asked God to remove it, but the now familiar answer was clear, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul heard straight from God's mouth how to per- persevere in trial. It is God's strength which carries us through. Jesus assured us that we would have trouble in this world. How negligent would our father be if he knew that and did not prepare us for tough times? Hear that? How negligent would our father be if he knew this and did not prepare us for tough times? But he has. Uh, And one of the places in which he does this is James chapter 1, verse 1 to 12. Now, the trials that life holds for us may be different than the trials that Bill Butterfield experienced. Or, or the people to whom James wrote. But in reality, it isn't always, and they lived happily ever after. There are trials, there are difficulties. Now, the book of James, to put it in context, is written to a group of Jewish Christians who had converted to Christ and are suffering because of that faith. We we know that they are Jewish Christians from many clues in the book. Um, For example, you have reference to the synagogue, not to the church, in James 2, verse 2. We can conclude that it was written to a predominantly Jewish audience, from all of the Old Testament references that you'll find in the book of James. References that wouldn't mean much to a a Gentile audience. We know that they're a Jewish audience from the fact that in in chapter 2, verse 21, there's reference to Abraham as our father. Something that wouldn't be said to a Gentile, Gentile audience. So these are primarily Jewish Christians who are experiencing suffering because they put their faith in Christ. They're being persecuted, they're being harassed, they're being driven from their homes. Some are losing their jobs, their businesses, their wages are withheld. They knew what it was like to to suffer. But since we all experience trials, even though they're different, not the same as these people, James gives some practical advice that helps not only Jewish Christians long ago and far away, but modern-day Christians here and now, for you and me. Um, This is why one writer, for instance, could say, one of the New Testament epistles which is least known and studied by the evangelical Christian is that of James. Great stress has been laid on the Pauline epistles, and rightly so. But it should be remembered that the other New Testament books are likewise of real value. Indeed, it seems that James fills a pressing modern need more fully than any other portion of the New Testament. Um, James is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of the New Testament epistles. And James wrote to correct error, but he also wrote to teach Christians how to be Christian. We can put it that way. Um, So much so in fact that James has been called the practical guide to Christian life and conduct. Now because both James and the book of Proverbs are filled with counsel and advice on how to live practically in this world. James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And it's easy to see that because James is much more about conduct than it is about creed. In fact... Uh, It's not a long book. There are only 108 verses in the book of James. But in 54 of them, half of them, you have a command or commands. It's a very practical book. So James' desire for his readers, and that includes us, is to learn to see our troubles, our trials from God's perspective. So throughout this short letter and the shorter verses to begin with, He provides principles that will enable us to face trials. Um, Not merely resign ourselves to trials, but to allow God to use them in our lives to accomplish something. And James wastes no time in in studying about that. In the first 12 verses of chapter 1, almost like a doctor, he prescribes the issue. He gives us two principles to kind of get a handle on trials. And then he gives a prescription with four commands and finally a prognosis. What can we expect? If we take the medicine, if we do the prescription, what will happen? What can we expect? So follow along in the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 1 to 12, and I'll read those verses for you. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you endure various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, Blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. that God has promised those who love him. So well, the diagnosis that James gives us really takes the, the form of two statements or two principles. And they're simply this. Trials are inevitable and trials are purposeful. Trials are inevitable. Look at verse 2. It says, when you encounter trials, not if you encounter trials, but when you encounter trials. Literally, the word means whenever, which means not only once, but many times in your life, you're going to face Trials. Trials are not elective. They're going to come. They're going to happen. In fact, the word various in verse 2, where he talks about various trials, it's even more vivid in the Greek language in which James wrote it. It literally means many colored or variegated. There are different kinds of trials that will come. Someone said they come in many shades of blue. Peter says much the same thing. In 1 Peter 4.12, where he, he writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Trials shouldn't strike us as unusual. They're the norm. They're going to happen. They're inevitable. The second truth James gives us is that trials are purposeful. David Nystrom wrote this, trials can result from Satan. They can be allowed by or sent by God, or they can be a part of the normal ebb and flow of life. We must not see trials as necessarily the tool of the devil. Many in the name of Christ claim that sickness and infirmity are signs of sin, or of Satan's actions, or both. The Bible makes it clear that sickness can be the result of sin or Satan but the Bible also makes it clear that it is not necessarily the case. God sometimes uses infirmity for his purpose, as in the case of Paul's thorn in the flesh. Not all sickness or infirmity is an attack against God and his people. It's a test of faith. Faith is, is always tested, but the testing has a purpose. I like the way Warren Wearsby expressed it, He said, God always tests us to bring out the best in us. The devil tempts us to bring out the worst in us. And while trials and temptations are different, the way we approach them, the way we deal with them are also different. Um, In verse 3 and 4, James reminds us of one of the most significant truths of life. That our trials have purpose. Here's what he says. The testing of your faith produces endurance. But let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our pain is to be productive. That's what caused Bill Billheimer to write his book. Don't waste your sorrows. Um, our, our pain is to be Productive. Uh, that's so contrary to what we think. That sounds like such a cruel thing to say to someone who's suffering. It'll be productive. Uh, it's meant to be productive. But James tells us these trials are a sign that God is at work. Uh, Paul says something similar in Second Corinthians 4 verse 17. He says, for the momentary light affliction is producing an eternal weight of Glory. James 1.3, if you look back at James 1, tells us the, the specific purpose that God has in mind in allowing trials. It produces endurance. That word endurance is an interesting word because it comes from really two Greek words. One means to remain and the other means to stand under. And so taken together, it, it means that we have the ability to remain under pressure without collapsing. It's kind of a synonym almost for patience or fortitude or steadfastness. It's stick in the best sense of that word. Uh, we all admire people who go through trials and have stick We would like the same thing for ourselves. And James says that we can have that. But God's desire in these trials is that we learn to trust him, to depend on him. You know, so often in the various trials and, and tests of our faith, um, we we trust ourselves rather than trust God. In fact, when we first become a Christian, we, we trust God, but we also have a lot of that attitude, me do it. A, a trust in God, but also a lot of trust in ourselves. And God sometimes sends trials so that we learn to trust him more and trust ourselves less. First Peter one six and seven says, "In this you greatly rejoice, even now for a little while. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when Christ comes. So." Trials come to authenticate our faith. They come to complete our faith, to strengthen our faith, um, to learn to trust him, not ourselves. That's why James says, let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that's the tough part. One writer put it this way, the world does not believe what Christians believe because the world does not believe that the Christian believes. Show them whether or not we do when we go through trials. Same writer said, we have our theology straight and yet we know if we're honest that it's difficult to take the principles of the word of God and make them work in the marketplace, in the street, behind the wheel of a car, and at the kitchen sink. But that's the purpose of trials. To teach us how to make faith work uh, in the marketplace, in the street, behind the wheel of a car, at the kitchen sink. Our trials have a purpose, but often we don't let the purpose work its way out. We rebel too soon. We, we speak too quickly. We get angry. We don't listen. We, we don't let it do its work. We stop short of the goal and our our question that we shout at God is, why me? What did I do? Why do I deserve this? We miss God's plan for us, which is to complete us, to strengthen us, to make us better. The late Arthur Matthews was a missionary in China and this, of course, is pre-communist days, but it doesn't mean it was easy. They were very difficult days for missionaries in China, a lot of discouragements. And in one letter that he wrote home, he said, these trials of faith are given, us, given to us, are, are to give us patience, for patience can only be worked as faith goes into the pressure cooker. To pull out because the pressure is laid on and to start fretting would be to lose all the good that he has in, a, in it for us. Isabel Kuhn was another missionary in China. In her, in her book, Green Leaf in Drought Time, she wrote about the impact of this advice from, from Arthur Matthews on the other missionaries in China with whom he had shared this. And she said this, that she learned that, number one, we are to say, he, God, brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place, and in that fact I will rest. Secondly, say, he will keep me here in his love and give me the grace to behave as his child. Third, say, then he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends me to learn. And four, say, in his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when he alone knows. To kind of paraphrase that and Push it down a little what she is saying. So let me say, I'm here by God's appointment in his keeping, under his training, for his time. When you go through trial, say that to yourself. I am here by God's appointment in his keeping, for his time, or for his training, and for his time. And we might add, for his purpose. Our troubles are inevitable, but they're also purposeful. And the purpose is to produce endurance. And that happens only as we go through the trial and keep on trusting God. Go through the trial and be open to what he has to teach us. Go through the trial and be faithful to him. Um, And that makes us just a little bit more able to face trials. Now, based on those two truths that Trials are inevitable and trials are purposeful. James gives four commands. Here's his prescription. How do you deal with trials? Four commands. And the first of them is cultivate an attitude of joy. Look at verse 2. James writes about this topic of trials because he knows his readers are going through trials. And he writes to them and he says, "Uh, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's pretty radical counsel for Someone who's suffering. That's pretty radical counsel for someone going through trials. Now the trials James is referring to are the testing and refining situations in life. The hard situations in which our faith is sorely tested such as persecution there in James's day. Or difficult moral choices or some tragic experience that we may go through. James doesn't gloss over the reality of the pain. Um, he, he, he doesn't try to downplay that. Instead, he points to the transformative purpose of trials. If we look at the difficult situation, not just from the perspective of suffering and pain and the problem, but look at it from God's perspective and what he intends to do with it, we can have joy. Um, it would take a deranged mind. To enjoy trials. It would take a crazy person to look for suffering. um, But it can be the context in which God can work. And that's what brings joy, to know that God can work. I remember my dad used to say, uh, he would key off that verse of Romans in Romans 8 For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, for they're called according to his purpose. And he would say God is the only one I know who can take six bad things and six good things and make them work together for good in fact he said God's the only one who can take six bad things and six bad things and make them work together for good but that's what he does James is not a masochist um, he, he doesn't uh, enjoy suffering he's not a stoic just grin and bear it rather As we come to believe in these trials and struggles as God's means of increasing endurance and strengthening our faith, we can have joy in the purpose that God has. That's why the scripture says, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say for everything give thanks. That'd take an idiot. In everything give thanks. Second command that James gives for facing trial successfully is in verse 5. Cultivate an expectant heart. In verse 5 he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without finding fault and it will be given to him. That verse is so often taken out of context. This is not a verse students pray before their math test. Study ahead of time. This is a verse for people going through trials who need wisdom about how to respond, how to act, how to handle it. And James says in that context, if you lack wisdom, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to respond. Ask God. He'll give you wisdom about how to respond to the trial. Someone suggested, did the research. I haven't counted them, but someone suggested that there are at least 3,000 promises given in the Bible. This is just one of them. But um, the promise that God will give us wisdom abundantly is surely one of the best. When we go through trials, we, we need divine help. We need what James calls wisdom. We need to know how to respond, how to react to that. And James says God will give it, and God will give it generously. He doesn't criticize you for needing it. He doesn't criticize you for not knowing on your own what to do. He'll give you the wisdom you ask for. But like all the promises in scripture, we have to claim it. We have to live in the light of it. We have to actually ask. When James says that we should ask for wisdom without doubting, he's not trying to encourage Christians to take what doubts they might have and press them down and act like they're believing. Uh, It's not an emotional thing at all. It's a call to commitment, What he's doing is saying, commit yourself to obey God and trust God no matter what happens. No matter how intense the pressure gets. No matter how difficult the trial becomes. Commit yourself to trusting God. God longs to give us wisdom and insight and power to make godly choices. And James says, if you ask, you'll do that. Third command he gives to handle trials is in verse 6 to 8 and it's cultivate a submissive will here's what James says in verse 6 to 8 but let him ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind for let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord being a double minded man unstable in all his ways one of the reasons we struggle in times of trial is that we lack a commitment to do the will of God. Uh, we haven't. De- our attitude is, God, tell me what you want me to do, and then I'll decide whether or not I'll do it. James is saying, decide ahead of time before God ever tells you what to do, you're going to do what he says. You'll obey him. Um, you can't enjoy God unless you're abandoned to God. You can only endure God. So we're called to make a commitment to obey God, whatever He asks, and do it before He asks. Cultivate an attitude of joy. Cultivate an attitude. Uh, cultivate an expectant heart. Cultivate a submissive will. And the fourth command James gives is cultivate a clear perspective. Verse nine and ten. Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. Let the rich man glory in his low position because like flowering grass he will pass away I mentioned the difficult circumstances these Jewish Christians are are living in Um, many of them had been driven from their homes Um, they had been ostracized in their communities they'd lost most of what they owned they'd lost their jobs their livelihood they were being scattered to other places and if we're going to deal successfully with trials like that or even lesser trials because we haven't been called on to do that we have to cultivate a clear perspective we have to learn to view our circumstances through God's wisdom and God's purpose not just the pain we live in a world that constantly pushes the idea that happiness depends on what I have Um, the abundance of things if we had the right house or the right car or the right clothes, or the right profession, then we'd be happy, we'd be successful. Life would be good. But James says, the rich man will fade away. He'll be like a flower of the field. He'll, he'll waste away. John Ortberg wrote a book called The Game of Life. It has a great statement in there. He says, remember, when the game is over, it all goes in the box. If we're going to be successful in dealing with pain and trials, we have to realize happiness doesn't come from the things which in the end all go in the box. It comes from satisfaction with God. Christians can have joy in sorrow because as Warren Wiersbe said, for the things that matter most, our values determine our evaluations if we value comfort more than character, trials will upset us. If we value material and physical things more than the spiritual, we'll not count it all joy. And that's why we need to cultivate the right perspective. And James says, if we do these things, there's a reward. Here's his prognosis. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him that's his prognosis you know a lot of people if they were writing james 1:17 would write it this way blessed is the one who never has his faith tested blessed is the one who always gets his way who's prosperous who never experiences sorrow who never knows sickness who always succeeds that's the way we'd write it it's not the way james writes it james tells us when god looks at our trials and struggles in difficulties and points of pressure, he sees them as an opportunity to reveal his power and his strength and his grace to us if we respond properly. God gives us the grace to persevere. He gives us the wisdom to discern how to act. And then he gives us the power to act that way. And I think this is illustrated in the comments of one woman whose particular form of trial was breast cancer. And here was her testimony. She said, you take a long look at your life and realize that many things that you thought were important before are totally insignificant. That's probably been the major change in my life. What you do is put things in perspective. You find out that things like relationships are really the most important things you have. The people you know and your family. Everything else is just way down the list. It's strange that it takes something so serious to make us realize that. Sometimes it does. And when, if it does, remember God has a purpose. and Endure. Trials and temptations, they're different. God sends trials to test us. The devil sends temptation to defeat us. We respond differently. Trials must be endured. Temptations must be resisted. Look at that other problem we face next week. Father, we thank you for your word. It's so practical, it's so helpful. Its promises are so reassuring and comforting and challenging. And your challenge to us is to ask for the wisdom we need in times of trial. How to respond, how to how to act, how to keep trusting Jesus. We pray that you will help us to do that. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Matt has a closing song, and then I'll close with a benediction.